Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome everyone. This is a special segment of the Benefits Executive Roundtable where I'll be co-hosting with Ted Flitner, principal of Aditi Group, and discussing HIPAA privacy and security as well as basic IT security for your firm. Welcome, Ted. Thank you very much for sharing my hosting duties today. Well, thank you, Dorothy. It's a pleasure to be here to talk with you about the different sides of HIPAA, as you and I often do with our privacy training workshops. So today, we're going to focus on my questions to Dorothy. We turn the table around. And these are going to be questions about the administrative side, the phys physical security side, about uh, all the background on HIPAA and privacy and security and, and high tech. So with that said, let's take it away. Yeah, and just by the way, for anyone who's listening to this, don't assume that this podcast is ample training because it's not. This is a <laughs> podcast, uh, very short in nature and, and uh, you know, not intended. I guess we should put our disclosure in there. This is not intended to satisfy the HIPAA security and HIPAA privacy requirements for training. I guess we should start with saying that. Not quite. <laughs> As you know, I usually interview others on issues of interest, and today I'm going to be interviewing Ted, and he's going to be interviewing me on this topic. So, Ted, you get a chance to turn the tables on me today. Fun for you. First, before we begin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Aditi Group? Aditi Group is an IT service company that brings large company industry best practices to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, those are the businesses that don't have the resources or knowledge of big uh, IT departments. We also work with large companies. Uh, but our, our main focus is small and medium-sized businesses, and our focus is primarily on privacy and security, while at the same time emphasizing high performance and cost affordability. And basically, our, our principle is uh, we believe that technology should enable uh, more capability while allowing us to maintain security. And since about 2009, we have supported companies and individuals to become HIPAA compliant, to operate HIPAA compliant, and uh, to avoid the risks um, and bring solutions that we're going to talk about. Um, and we've also worked with um, Advanced Benefit Consulting uh, since 2009. Yes. So I understand you have some questions for me. This is interesting for me. Yeah, I, I've got some questions. And, and let's, it's really, let's start with the, the first question. You know, um, just in a, in a, very briefly, if you can tell us, what is HIPAA? You know, I, I see it uh, misspelled. Uh, most of the time. That's, see, my, that's my pet peeve. I see way. it misspelled most of the time. So, you know, what is it? It is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. And for those of you paying attention, that is H-I-P-A-A, -A, two A's, not two P's. That's the most common spelling mistake. <laughs> People say, they, it's really funny because they'll call me and they'll send me an email and they tell me how great they are, how much they know about HIPAA, and then they spell it H-I-P-P-A. And I say, um, yeah, sure you do. And we'll go on from there. <laughs> it's, I mean, sometimes it could be a typo. But sometimes it's because people just aren't as comfortable with it and aren't as familiar as, as, what they, as what they think they are. So I guess the first thing I should caution you is get the spelling right if you're going to talk to an expert because they take that pretty seriously if you don't get the spelling right. Spell it right before the audit. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, too, because um, most people think of HIPAA nowadays as uh, privacy and security side of HIPAA. And it actually started off in 1996 uh, completely different. Um, it started off as a law that allowed portability 
um, for health coverage. So before the ACA, there was actually HIPAA. That's what started this whole thing. So in 1996, people had to start getting uh, certificates of coverage uh, to carry forward their pre-existing condition status so that they wouldn't have to meet that pre-existing waiting period all again, all over again. Um, the privacy and security part of this did not start, of course, until 2003 or 2004, depending on the, the size of the entity at that time. Excellent. So, you know, when I visit, um, uh, you know, a doctor's office and I sign a HIPAA form, um, is that all there is to HIPAA? <laughs> oh, don't we all wish that's all there was to HIPAA. There's a lot more to it. Um, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, is that a lot, you're right, a lot of people do think that that's, that's all there is to it. Um, if, if that's all there was to it, I guess we wouldn't be doing this podcast today, and I guess you and I wouldn't be doing a full-day privacy <laughs> training right. uh, two or three times a year um, because it's a lot more complicated. We'll get into the specifics on that, but the bottom line is uh, there's a lot of things that, that providers, doctor's offices, hospitals, and so forth have to do, and it's not just all about signing a HIPAA authorization form. So how does an employer know if they have to comply with HIPAA? privacy and security requirements? Well, they have to comply if they're a covered entity. It's as simple as that, but th that alone, I guess, isn't all that simple. So I guess it depends on whether they're a provider or whether they're uh, an employer that's not a provider. If you're a widget maker, if you're a tech firm, if you're any other type of, of employer other than um, a healthcare provider, the question is, do you sponsor a group health plan? If you sponsor a group health plan, that automatically makes you a covered entity. The question is a little bit easier when it's someone like a provider or an insurance carrier because by definition they are covered entities. So all providers and all insurance companies, all insurance carriers, issuers are covered entities by definition, so they must comply. So the covered entities basically are, again, just to kind of sort of repeat myself, but just to make sure people understand, covered entities are providers, insurance carriers, employers that sponsor a health plan. And also, you have to keep in mind business associates, even though they're not covered entities, they're your partners that do a lot of work for the covered entities, and they're treated exactly the same as a covered entity. So I want to bring those up as well. Especially because that applies to me. So, that applies to you. It so applies we, to me, too. So our company is a, a, you know, a business associate you know, for many other providers. Exactly. So as we, we have are. to comply with HIPAA. Yes. And by doing that, we have to have signed business associates agreements and some other things that we'll, I'm sure we'll get into throughout the course of this discussion today. Thank you. So do you have a, a checklist or a recipe that people can, you know, buy to guarantee compliance? <laughs> I like that question because the word guarantee is, is the interesting part. Um, there are no guarantees in HIPAA privacy and security compliance, of course. You and I are aware of that. Um, and that's primarily because... First of all, things have to be specific to that covered entity. Everything that you do has to be specific to that covered entity, uh, how you do business and so forth. But there's always this one very important factor, and that is human beings are the weakest link. And you can be the most compliant person in the world. We can give you a checklist. Um, a lot of consultants help you by giving you a checklist. We all have them. Um, we can give you a list of all of the things in general that you have to do, but you have to apply those to your own entity, and they apply in many, many ways, depending on what you're doing, what your operations are like. So a checklist is just a guide. That's all it is, is a guide. We can give you a checklist. You can work through that if you want to work with an entity like us for HIPAA privacy and security for the physical administrative part. If they want to work with someone like your firm to do the security stuff, um, the high-tech stuff, um, you can give them checklists, but that's not going to guarantee anyone's compliance. Because let's just say that you do everything. You hire me, let's say. I come in and I do your, your privacy implementation. And at the time I do it, I make sure that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. And we've gone through every item on that checklist, which generally doesn't happen, by the way. You get maybe 70 to 90% of those things done. And 
a lot of it, like the IT side of it, has to become later, and then I come back and recheck it. That's my side. Right, that's your side of this stuff. But um, So we can go through that list, but here's what happens quite often. If you don't continue to follow up on this stuff and make sure that you do it all along, <laughs> anything can happen. As I mentioned very briefly, you know, humans are the weakest link in this picture, and the bottom line is what happens if you were perfectly compliant, you thought, on day one, but then on day 117, you have an employee that terminates and someone forgets to turn off their access. Whoops. Whoops, yeah. So then a breach can occur, a lot of things can happen, right? So that's the most common types of things that can happen. What happens if they don't do a software patch, which you can talk about that stuff in a little bit, but whoops. that's another whoops, a <laughs> bigger oops. Um, so things change all the time and people have to understand that even if you think you're compliant today, that doesn't mean that it's gonna be an ongoing thing. You constantly have to monitor, you constantly have to uh, do all the right things and, and monitor this stuff as you go through. So you gotta have the checklist. You gotta follow the checklist. Ooh, that's the people part. That's the people part. And you gotta keep checking. Right? Yes. You need to keep monitoring. Yes. Wow. It's, yes. Uh, ooh, this sounds like a lot of work. That is a lot of work. Yeah, that's why people hire people like us, <laughs> by the way. They just tell me what to do. It's not as easy as that. You still have to do some of the work. You still have to do, you can hire the, you know, the best consultants in the world, like us, <laughs> but you can't necessarily assume that we're going to be able to monitor that for you. you that's something that you have to do internally. Well, we all have a part to play in it. Then, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so you know, HIPAA privacy rules, they have requirements for physical and administrative security. What are the probably the most important things that employers uh, should be doing to protect themselves and comply with the laws? Well, let's break it down. You mentioned physical and, and administrative security, and those are the parts that I um, obviously specialize in. Uh, physical security, a lot of it's pretty simple. Um, properly lock down your protected health information, or PHI, um, and, as well as things that are confidential like social security numbers and other private information, payroll information, and so forth. The one thing that I want to mention is that although we're talking about HIPAA privacy and security, especially here in California, there are a lot of other privacy laws that come into play, not just HIPAA. Um, so I know that when we're doing the implementations and so forth, and I know you do the same thing on the IT side, we have to look at all of the items and not just the HIPAA records because there are a lot of other um, pieces of information that you have in your possession that, that fall under some other privacy rule that we have to protect as well. So physical lockdown of the PHI, of the um, social security numbers and all private information. You want to sometimes put up physical barriers so that people can't get in the way. Put up all kinds of firewalls and those are some of the things that you'd learn in training and some of the things that um, we could um, help you with. Um, sometimes you have to have double locked cabinets um, for physical information, for physical paper files. Um, for example, if it's mental health information or if it's social security numbers, those require double lockdowns. Um, so it's, it gets into a lot of detail there. Um, sometimes there are specific office cabinets, file cabinets and so forth that certain members of the privacy work group have to uh, use and sometimes maybe just supervisors and managers, for example, a work comp situation, even though work comp is the plan, the, the actual work comp side of it is not part of HIPAA. The medical information is, so you'd wanna, you want to um, make sure those are locked down properly. But the problem is your supervisors and managers that are dealing with uh, work comp claims may not be part of the privacy work group. So you might have to have a separate type of access for them to be able to deal with those, those records and so forth and get their hands on things and lock them up properly. And what are you gonna do when people are in the field and so forth. So you have to put in all these uh, items, uh, you know, that we'll talk a little bit later about policies and procedures, but you have to put in all these things to, to deal with physical security of all these types of records. Um, it comes down to other firewalls too, like computer screens, making sure they're turned so when people walk through they can't see them. There's all sorts of things that have to be done as far as physical security. 
Uh, on the administrative side, I think that's probably the most important. Um, there are basically four key elements in administrative, uh, administrative security. Training is the most important thing, and that really is dependent on job functions. What do people have access to? So you have to break that down within your organization. Job um, functions. Yes, their job functions and so forth. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, the, and then policies and procedures. Now, people all say they have policies and procedures. But telling someone one time um, and then three years later, maybe somebody brings it up again, um, and it was just something written, um, just kind of, well, this is the way we've always done it. That doesn't really work for HIPAA privacy and security. You have to have written policies and procedures. There are a lot of forms that you have to create. HIPAA requires a lot of um, forms and um, you know, documentation forms, notices of privacy practices, authorization forms. I could go on and on and on. And probably the most underrated thing, but probably one of the most important things for administrative security is a risk assessment. Um, that's yeah. something that you know that. You've had to deal with that many times. Um, most of the settlements and civil monetary penalties that have occurred have been because of uh, people having or people failing to have a risk assessment done or doing one one time and then forgetting about it and mm -hmm. not going back to it and rechecking it. And as things change, they didn't update it. So um, that's probably the most important of the administrative security. I mean, policies and procedures, obviously very, very important, but risk assessments are absolutely the most important administrative security uh, provision that you need to have in force. Well, that, that's a lot to consider. And, and it's interesting, the, you know, like the physical security, it seems so old school. But it's it's a key thing that's it's, that's required. We're still we still have paper. We still have paper. Everybody kind of laughs at me. My friends, I have a, I have a close friend who who's who's a software sales guy, and he laughs at me all the time. And he said, "How many? How come you have so many paper files? How many? How come you have so many <laughs> file cabinets in your office?" I said, "We're still very much a paper industry. I hate mm -hmm. to say it, but we are." Um, for example, even as a, as we're consultants for HIPAA privacy and security, we're all also health insurance brokers. We deal with open enrollment every year, and not all of our clients can provide open enrollment materials um, you know, electronically because if their employees don't have automatic access you know, to a computer at all times, they don't qualify to get electronic information. So everything has to be paper. So someone fills out data and so forth, fills out information, has private information on it, it has to be stored properly. So mm -hmm. paper is still, it's, yeah, we all want to go. It's nice to be able to get rid of the paper. Hopefully you can at some point get rid of most of it, scan it, encrypt it, um, put it somewhere in the cloud. But the bottom line is there are a lot of organizations, including ours, that still have a tremendous amount of paper, and we have to deal with that. You have both. You know, we have both. You have we both. have to deal with both. Yeah, so you, know, you mentioned uh, the importance of um, policies and procedures uh, in organizations. You know, most of us don't love writing procedures, uh, me included. Mm -hmm. How important is documentation or you know, putting it in writing? Oh, it's absolutely a must. Um, first of all, it's your first line of defense. If you ever audited, um, if you ever have any type of review um, by HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Office of Civil Rights, um, OCR is actually the enforcement arm of HHS. The first thing they look for is written documentation. If you don't have it, um, then trust me, you will be penalized. Um, that you, you just, there's no way around it. You absolutely have to have it. And just because you created policies and procedures, as I mentioned, maybe you started this in 2003 or 2004, but you haven't touched them since, you still have a problem because things change with high tech and with everything else that we'll talk about later. But um, the, again, they constantly have to be monitored. Um, but there are various types of policies and procedures. And if you're just a widget maker, just a manufacturer, something that's not a, um, a health plan, um, you know, you have to have at least certain types of policies and procedures in place, like a privacy work group, a set of policies and procedures for them. 
Um, if you have supervisors and managers that deal with things like work comp, um, you have to have policies and procedures for them. Um, I always look at supervisors and managers in an organization as either your best asset or your greatest liability, depending on how you train them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you train them by coming up with what they need to do, what they can and can't do, and that's what policies and procedures do. Um, so I think they're really key in an organization. Um, little things like self-disclosure. Can people make self-disclosures um, when they're on site in your office um, or on a job site? Um, well, you have to deal with that. You have to determine that up front, whether you're going to have a self-disclosure policy uh, and what those rules are going to be. Um, you have to know automatically. So one of the most important things in, in HIPAA privacy is minimum necessary. And, and I don't have time to get into all that detail today, but the bottom line is you have to figure out for your organization what's the minimum necessary information that people need to have to get their job done uh, and have access to nothing but the minimum necessary information. Um, and another type of policies that you absolutely need to have in this day and age is electronic policies. And that's a lot of that, as you know, Ted, when I do these, I create a baseline, just a basic type of electronic policies. And then I turn them over to you guys because I don't know what exactly they're doing on the IT side. So, and, and it, again, it, that goes back to you know what we talked about with the checklist. You mm -hmm. know, there's, there's there's certainly not a generic uh, solution, right? Because it you know the electronic policies, you know, we have to craft those to match the type of data they use, the the, the flow of data, the the devices, and so on. it has to be customized, right? And, and you just little things like, what are, are you allowing people to plug USB drives into your computers and, and take things away? Um, how are you going to protect that data? Um, you know, what about cell phone usage? Um, these days, people always need to charge their phones because they're using their phones all the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people plug their cell phones into the company computers yeah. because they want a, a USB charge. Um, that's usually a no-no. Um, that <laughs> when can you're be dealing, dangerous. It could be very dangerous because... They can transfer data. So, um, how do you deal with you know with portable devices? Who has access to what? You have to figure out all those things. What types of materials? What types of data do you want to encrypt? All these things are important in policies and procedures. So you have to think of this upfront, and then you have to continually monitor it. Um, and it's you know as far as the importance of the policies and procedures. I mean this this is you have to first know what you need to have policies and procedures for, and then you could go from there. So you have to really look at your own organization and see what your needs are. And it's really the first thing an auditor is going to look at. Absolutely. And, and as auditor. a former auditor myself, I will tell you that they definitely will take a look at certain things. And one of the most important things they look at is your policies, is your written set of policies. And show procedures. me the book. Show me the book. Right. And show me that everybody has, has read the book. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. And, and I, it has to be in writing. That's the most important thing. Um, if it's not right in writing, if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. So says HHS and OCR. They say that all the time. If so. it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Right, yeah. right. So don't think you can just verbally tell your people once five years ago and think that's going to cut it. That's not going to work. Well, you're, you're getting really strict here. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's me. That's the nature of who I am and what I do for a living. Well, what, what kind of training do you recommend for employers that are, are not under the, uh, they're not healthcare providers? Well, if they're not healthcare providers, it's actually a lot easier. Um, it really is. The training is simpler. I'm not saying that's non-existent. I'm saying simpler, meaning um, not quite as comprehensive as, 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 as a provider training would be. But still, it really depends on your organization and what types of employees and what it is that you do and what type of information they have access to. Once you know that, then you can determine what kind of uh, training you need. Um, your privacy work group is going to need extensive training. Uh, as you know, we offer um, full day, nine to four, with, there are lunch breaks and other breaks, but um, we do offer extensive training. I think we're probably the most 
um, detailed trainer that I'm aware of uh, because I get into all the little stuff because um, I don't want people walking out of there thinking, you know, I don't. I still to this day can't figure out how people can send somebody to um, a, or, or have an online training of one hour and expect that to cover everything that HIPAA requires you to do. I don't think that's possible, but you don't have to necessarily have the full day training like what we offer. We just kind of go all the way and make sure that you know we cover as many bases as we can so you definitely need privacy work group training um, I would suggest that you come up with supervisor and manager training as well because again they do handle work comp claims and you need to know how to deal with that even though work comp is not part of HIPAA the medical information if someone has their arm chopped off in an accident um, oh. or something happens would you would you agree that's a medical condition so of course um, you still have to protect the medical information and then they're probably going to be your enforcers for the most part um, on documentation and so forth. Um, so you need to figure that all out up front and, and deal with that. What happens if you receive a subpoena request, something from a lawyer or something from a court? What's the difference? Do they make it? Is there a difference? Yes, there is. You need to know the differences of these things up front. Uh, and you need to train your people appropriately. Um, basic employee training for everyone else. So, you know, privacy work group, the most extensive, and then the supervisors and managers, and then all employees, pretty much basic training. Usually that can be covered in 18 to 20 minutes. So, wow. Yeah, so let's go with that, that first group, privacy work group. What, what's a privacy work group as compared to, say, other supervisors and, and administrators? Good question, actually. Uh, privacy work group is basically your core uh, group of, of, of employees that are making decisions that are dealing with day-to-day -day health information. Usually it's you have to designate a privacy officer and a security officer. Sometimes that's the same. Sometimes quite often they are different people because the functionality is quite different between the two. Um, but if it's a small organization, it could be, it could be definitely one person. Um, so you have a privacy group, you have a privacy group leader, which is your privacy officer. And then you have what I consider, what I call a primary privacy work group uh, member. And then you have to have someone like a, um, uh, an HR manager or a director of human resources because they have day-to-day -day access to medical information of employees. Um, and then maybe the rest of their HR team is part of the privacy work group too, just because again of the, of the type of information they have access to. It may just be only one is in the privacy work group, but others are maybe at a lower level, but it really depends on your organization. For the most part, most HR people are going to be in the privacy work group. Supervisors and managers, um, their training is a little bit, as I said, is a little bit different, um, but you, the, the most important thing is privacy work group. Part of that privacy work group is going to also be the IT manager. Got to get them in there. Yes. Yes. IT manager. IT. Um, it could be, it, you know, you might have one person that's a supervisor that deals with handling all of the work comp claims. You may not have all of your supervisors in there, but you might have one that deals with all, maybe the, the manager of the supervisors that mm -hmm. deal with all that sort of thing. So each group is going to be a little bit different, but the privacy work group, you need to determine that. Again, first and foremost, a privacy officer, and then you get into your primary privacy work group member or members and make sure that, that includes someone in HR and someone in IT. And from there, it really depends on your organization. Yeah, and when we go back, uh, just to uh, refresh, you know, the, what are they going to look for in an audit? Who's your privacy work group members? You know, <laughs> where's your policies and procedures? Yeah. <laughs> and demonstrate that, that those people are trained. Yes, they, they're right. going to always request training, and usually they'll go, they can go back, you know, um, six years on federal basis, seven years in California. Wow. So they can go back a long time. So you have to maintain all the training records. You can't just have them train one time and expect that to do the job. 
Uh, and again, as things changed, obviously things changed a lot from 2003, 2004 to 2009 when high tech was introduced. Um, and then again in 2013 when final regulations came out, that changed everything too. So, um, you know, you have to really keep up and see what's going on and, and realize that this is important. Um, but the most bottom line is, even though you're not a provider, you still have to comply with HIPAA if you if you sponsor a health plan. Well, how about if you are a provider? Okay, well, that gets into a lot more detail, believe it or not, than what I went over just now. Um, you basically have to comply twice if you if you are a provider that also sponsors a health plan for your employees, and then you do everything that I just mentioned um, from the human resources side. So that's HR side of it. Now you get into the provider side of it, and um, you have to comply all over again. Um, you have to add training primarily for clinical handling. Where do you store patient records? Be very specific on that. Who has access? Uh, what type of access? Does, every, does everyone that currently has access, do they really need to have all that access? Maybe they could have more limited access. So you have to really figure that what, out. What was that phrase? Minimum necessary. Minimum necessary. Minimum necessary. Minimum necessary. So you have to figure that out. That comes more, much more into play when you're a provider than it does um, an employer who might be a widget maker. Um, but it's really specific. And um, then you have to figure out what you're going to do about, do you have electronic health records these days? Pretty much everyone does. And if so, how are you protecting those? Encryption, encryption, encryption. That's most I can say on that, and and I'll let you get into the rest of that later. But and very detailed policies and procedures. We talked about how important those were earlier. It's even more so on the provider side. Um, little things like how are you de-identifying your uh, information of your patients, your clients, your customers. Um, if they're your patients and they need to be de-identified, you need to figure out a way to do that that no one from the outside can figure out who those people are. And I've had a lot of providers de-identify by first two initials of the first name and two first two initials of the last name and think that that's going to work and it doesn't work. First of all, there are a lot of uh, last names, for example, that are simply two letters. If you look at the Asian population, you have a lot of so's, a lot of woos. Um, there are a lot of names that if by using the first two letters, you're basically telling them their entire name and that doesn't work. Um, so that's the biggest challenge that I have when dealing with training providers uh, is getting them to accept the fact that sometimes what you've been doing forever isn't going to pass an audit. It isn't going to work. And you have to take so, the advice of people like you and so I. So we may need to change how we do things. We might need to change, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a challenge. That is a challenge. So it's, it, you, you go through this challenge of creating the policies and procedures, you know, develop everything, and then how do I get people trained in that and then how do I get people to follow that you know this is this is a, can be a large undertaking it's, it's 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 quite comprehensive people think it's easy and it's not easy well I mean so so given the amount of work that's involved you know how kind of like how onerous some of this uh, seems you know I I would expect that you know the authorities OCS HHS they're going after the big companies right I mean they're going after the giant companies how about how, how about <laughs> everybody else I mean how how not much true. of a risk? <laughs> how much of a risk, really, is there for employers to not do what they're supposed to do? There's a huge risk. It doesn't matter what size you are. If you are handling protected health information, you potentially could get audited. You could come in, and there are a lot of ways that enforcement happens. Um, the bottom line is, um, who enforces? Is as I mentioned before, the Department of Health and Human Services has um, an extension to them called the Office of Civil Rights (OCR). OCR is the enforcement arm of HHS. Um, they purposely, when they do things like 
audits and so forth, they purposely divide this out between small, medium, and large entities. Um, they try to find um, you know, an even amount of each when they're, when they're doing their test audits and so forth. And now they continue to do that. So it's really important that you understand that, that when they're enforcing, they're looking at everything. They're looking at small, medium, they're looking at large. Um, there are all kinds of ways that they enforce. Number one is audits. Those can be on-site or desk audits. Number two is complaint investigations. If there's been a complaint um, to your organization, hopefully you have someone designated to handle your complaints for you. And if you're a provider, you should have one for both human resources and one for your for your uh, provider side. So, and again, a lot of these can come com from uh, complaints. If, if people um, are those whistleblowers and they call in, um, they're supposed to go through you, but sometimes they don't. They may go straight to HHS um, and file a complaint. Um, then it comes back to you because HHS OCR will call and say, um, you know, I've had this complaint uh, and they're gonna expect you to answer this information. So one of the most important things you wanna make sure of, again, we talk about this in training, is when those calls come in, hopefully the people that answer those phone calls will know how to address those phone calls and not say, complaint what, HIPAA what? Because um, that's pretty much going to set you up for, for an on-site audit for the most part. Um, so again, audits, complaint investigations, and then compliance reviews. Um, those can be driven by breach reports, uh, ref sometimes referrals from the Attorney General, um, the Department of Justice, um, other, other government agencies that could be coming from news reports um, of ransomware that were not reported to OCR. If they, that's a big reason that they, they do uh, these compliance reviews. If they're reading in the paper that XYZ company just had, um, whether it's a medical group or an insurance company or whatever, just had a major data breach and they have not had record of that being filed with OCR. Oops. Oops. That's a bigger oops. Yeah. So again, they're going to look at those as well. So um, all of these can result in civil monetary penalties or settlements. The majority are settlements. And they. I will say that you're talking about the difference between small, medium, and large. Um, they are aware of the fact that small organizations can't, simply can't afford to pay the amount that large organizations can pay. Um, so when they're taking settlements into consideration and they do try to work with you and do a settlement, it's usually a very small percentage of what would have happened if they had done a full-blown um, audit and, and actually assessed a penalty under the civil monetary penalty. That's a lot larger in number. Um, so if you're getting a settlement, that's a good thing. It's a percent, small percentage of the civil monetary penalty. But there have been some as little as $10,000, and there have been the highest has been $16 million. Um, so they're all over the place. Um, and it really, they do take into consideration those types of things. Um, but the biggest areas where covered entities fail are lack of risk assessments and lack of, of uh, business associates agreement, or they had them, but they're 15 years old and they've never been updated. They never changed them with high tech. They never changed current. them. They're not current. So um, the, the largest, um, those are the largest numbers of, uh, when you look at the big settlements, that's almost every one of them says they fail to do a risk assessment. Um, and a lot of them says they fail to have updated um, uh, business associates agreement or any up, uh, any business agreement business associates agreement whatsoever. And aside from you know dollar amounts up to in the case of Anthem sixteen million dollars. Sixteen million. Uh, hello settlement. Um, is, is there jail time? Yeah, there can be. Um, if it's the civil monetary penalties are for the civil side of it. Um, basically, civil penalties are for when there's a wrongdoing but no one's been actually physically or financially harmed um, or emotionally harmed. Um, Usually there's jail time involved when someone has done something criminal in nature. 
So um, someone personally, someone that's on purpose going in and attacking your systems or someone that's stealing from you, um, that's criminal in nature. Um, if they're benefiting financially from it, um, that's criminal in nature. So the penalties are really all over the place. Um, again, if it's just you, you didn't you didn't update your documents, this and that, whatever. Um, and they will attach the penalty based on the size of the population affected. It's as simple as that. I don't have time to get into all the details on that today, but it is a part of it. So like that anthem, uh, close to 80 million <laughs> records. That's Yeah, that's basically, they were chomping at the bit on that one, and they wanted to do, uh, I feel I kind of feel bad for Anthem in a way, but um, they wanted to set, they wanted one big egregious case. That's what Roger Savarino said when he took over as the director. He says, I want the big juicy case, and guess what? That year, later that year, he got it they with got the th Anthem case. So They got some attention, right? They, they got a lot of attention. Um, yeah, so, and it, right now, the majority of, you know, audited um, entity, entities are 90% providers, um, but there's still 9% health plans so, uh, and 1% others. So, I mean, they're still going out there and they're still looking at everything. But the audits are, I mean, the uh, settlements are all over the board. And, and it seems like, you know, each week that goes by, there's another settlement announcement <laughs> or, a, you know, another uh, penalty that's been imposed. Yeah, I get the notices all the time, and you get them as well. Right, uh, and, it, and it's like I can't seem to keep up with. Uh, yeah, I can't either. Again it's and again, and and it seems like the um, the results or the answers are, you know, repeated again and again and again. Oh, it's it's crazy when you look at them. I actually have a few settlements, um, maybe uh, an inch worth here. Uh, that's a few um, in front of me here, and you know they can be as silly as, you know, the CVS one, which was the first big one we heard about years ago, the $2.25 million penalty um, for throwing out, uh, they discarded their paper um, prescription records out into a recycle bin out and back, and, and it was $2.25 million. And then Rite Aid had a million-dollar uh, settlement agreement not not long after that. And then you had the ones, the, the little ones. Um, you know, first of all, there was a WellPoint one for $1.7 million for uh, high-tech breaches, weaknesses in their database and online applications that were left accessible over the internet in 2013. There have been all kinds of hospitals. Massachusetts General, a million-dollar settlement. UCLA, a couple of them. Um, <laughs> again and again. <laughs> again and again. One of them, the first one was 865000 I believe. Uh, Signet Health Center, that was a $4.3 million penalty. $1.3 million um, for the HIPAA violations and another $3 million tagged on for their failure to cooperate with the OCR investigation. So I always thought that one was kind of fun to talk about. You definitely want to cooperate with them. Then there are little ones. There was a, a small entity in Phoenix, a cardiac center, a surgery center, that um, had its calendar on the Internet and had a $100,000 settlement because of that. Um, then there are all kinds of others. Um, I'll just, just a few of them. Um, you know, St. Elizabeth Medical Center was electronic. $218,000. Uh, there was a Cornell Prescription Pharmacy, $125,000. Um, Anchorage Community Mental Health Services, $150,000 for failure to patch their uh, software. Uh, they didn't update it. There was malware and so forth. Um, New York Presbyterian, Columbia, $4.8 I could go on and on and on well, and on. Well, even those, you know, small ones, I, I'm using the quote here, even even those small penalties of $100,000 to 300000 if you're, a, say, a, a small dentist office or an eye doctor or a family practice doctor, health provider, that, that could really hobble or, or put you out of business. Yeah, it really, and, and it really. That, and there's your retirement plan right there. There's it it really can. There's, actually, in the last year, there have been a lot more small ones I want to talk about. And the funny thing is, too, um, you mentioned this, um, there's, there are 
they, they still have a lot of, even if they're small, they still have a lot of patients. So it goes by the people, the number of people that were involved. And it, so the penalties and so forth are assessed based on what the population is that were harmed. Um, but there are cases, there are case in, cases now that they've been as little as $10,000. And I just want to mention um, a dental practice, by the way, and this is a social media case. And I just want to bring that up because this was just brand new in 2019. Um, and this was originated, it was a case called Elite, Elite Dental. Um, <laughs> It originated as a complaint by uh, someone that on a Yelp review said something negative about the dentist's office. And they were using um, a username only. They didn't put their full name in there. The doctor's office got really, the dental office got really, really upset about it and started lashing out at the patient. Um, and in doing so, basically disclosed their name, their last name, the treatment plan, the insurance information, you know, just arguing back and forth on this Yelp review. Um, I just want to caution people, if you're using social media, you've got to be smart about it. Um, I could give you a hundred different scenarios, but this one happened to result in, it was a very small organization, a very small dental practice, but it was a $10,000 settlement for one situation where the, the dentist kind of just went off on the, on the, uh, the patient that, that gave them a bad review. So the, the settlements are all over the place and, and it's just important to know that size doesn't matter. Um, you know, I, I've got a list here. And really, that's just the direct penalty. You know, even yeah. that, that $10,000 for dental practice, that uh, probably is eclipsed by the bad PR yeah. that they're going to get because oh, they're, yeah. uh, I'm sure their their name gets out there, doesn't it? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all these things, it's not a good thing. We'll talk more about that later. But the bottom line is you don't want to have these kind of uh, settlements because they are public information, public records. So it's not a good thing. It's not good for business. Ooh, that's not good for business, you know, and, and you know, you want to protect your business. Absolutely. Um, Bottom line. Let me ask you uh, another terminology question here. We talked about HIPAA and how to spell that. Uh, there's another term that I've heard uh, that we use. It's high tech. <laughs> well, high tech is actually very much what it sounds like, something technology related. Um, sounds like something coming out of the Silicon Valley, and in a lot of ways that's true. What it stands for is Health Insurance Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act. And yes, that's a mouthful. Ooh. <laughs> I know. That's government. That's government. Um, but the bottom line is it's basically um, legislation that went into effect um, in 2009 um, as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, actually. And it was designed to um, protect electronic health records and supporting technology in the United States overall. Um, the bottom line is how I like to define it, how, what I like to, when I'm in training, what I like to tell people is basically high tech is HIPAA security on steroids. That's what it's all about. Um, so it's really important that you understand what high tech is um, and understand that, you know, it can be everything from encryption, encryption, encryption. And I always say that at least three times because um, that is the most important thing. Um, you know, you, you can talk more about this. Other ways they can protect their data, electronic data, uh, putting in remote wipe, uh, making sure that that data is wiped before giving their their devices to a friend or family member, strong passwords, which I know you're gonna be talking about, um, secure at home networks, avoid, avoiding uh, public Wi-Fi, um, what are you doing with your smartphones, uh, how are you doing your texting, because texting is never protected and people need to understand that. Tablets, laptops, all kinds of portable devices, USB uh, drives, CDs, um, you know, are you closing off USB ports? All of those, that's all part of high tech and we'll get more into that, but the bottom line is, is that high tech is very, very important. Um, that's the electronic part of HIPAA privacy and security that you need to focus on. And that's what I focus on. That's what you focus on. Amen. So, you know, we, we spoke a minute ago about uh, 
the kind of penalties, the kind of prosecutions that are going on, uh, HHS, OCR? Just a few. Just a few. Um, what's the wall of shame? <laughs> the wall of shame, and by the way, HHS and OCR are very proud of calling it their wall of shame. <laughs> they, they actually like that. I, as you know, I, I attend their annual conferences every fall, and uh, it's a couple of days in Washington, D.C., either in person or on the web, depending on what my schedule looks like at that, during that month. Um, but they go through all this stuff. And the, hall, the uh, wall of shame is somewhere that you do not want to be. <laughs> because the bottom line is anyone can go online and see who's there. Um, do you want to get new patients? Do you want to get new clients? Um, and you're dealing with PHI? They may not take too kindly to seeing your name listed on the wall of shame. You, know, you have to understand that your patients, your clients, whoever you're working with, they trust you and they expect you to keep their health information safe. And when you don't, that's a poor reflection on you. So if you're on the wall of shame, you fail to keep that promise and that expectation um, for those, those patients and those customers and clients and so forth. And that's a big deal. I mean, can it be overcome? Yes, but it's a PR nightmare and it's, and it's difficult. And people, once they see you there, I mean, there's a chance that they could say, mm, maybe I'll use another medical group. Or maybe I mean, I'll use another hospital. Right, and who wants to be a you know, business associate that's going to work with someone who's who's already been bre- had a major breach. Who's had a breach, and and do you really trust that they're going to do the right thing? And do you want your name attached to right. to their name? Right. So it's it's widespread, and it's um, you know, <laughs> it's not an easy thing. And I and I always want to you know caution people that you can have all the policies and procedures that you want, but if you're not dealing with the 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 electronic part of this. Um, you're really missing the boat. So you've got to deal with all these things, all these wall of shame type of things. Most of them, again, they're high dollar amounts and low dollar amounts. They're all on there. All you have to do is Google, you know, HHS wall of shame and it'll come up. But um, it's very prominent and you don't want to be on, you don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be there. Right? Right. And, and, you know, and that actually brings us back to, you know, my first question about what is, is HIPAA. Um, you know, this is really about protecting our records. You know, it's, it's about my personal medical information. It's your personal, and everybody listening, each of us have, we go to doctors and, and practitioners. We have insurance. We have, you know, our information is out there. I know for me, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about what we do is I am passionate about securing my own information, my own personal information. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's uh, kind of a travesty when organizations don't, take better care yeah. of our data? Yeah, really, it really is. And as you know, I'm, I'm passionate too, and the first thing I do is call you. So um, when I need to make sure <laughs> something is working or not working, or if, uh, if I'm worried about something, an email that I received or something else. Um, so I do appreciate the, the work that you do on that. Um, before we turn it over to me to interview you on some things on this, particularly related to this high-tech stuff, I just want to um, throw out a name that you may or may not be aware of, and that is... You may not know the name as much as you know the character. If you ever saw the movie Catch Me If You Can. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, yes. Um, Frank Abagnale uh, is the real person. And bottom line is he was one of, he's one of the most prominently known um, people that have attempted, believe it or not, given his history, to work with government and try to help them be more compliant. Um, and I want to just quickly give a quote of his that he uh, mentioned in uh, March of 2015. Technology works, but we're always dealing with the weakest link, the human beings. And I think that's a good way to, um, to, to uh, turn this over to, to questions for you. But the bottom line is, if you remember Frank Abagnale in the movie, he um, was basically the first 
well-known uh, identity theft specialist. He was a pilot. He was a, a doctor. He was a lawyer. But the bottom line is he ultimately, and I'll tell you that story, if, all those stories and more if you ever go to our trainings, but um, the bottom line is at the, end of the, at the end of the movie, at the end of the book, you saw that he was working with Tom Hanks' character in the movie FBI. with the FBI, and he continues to do that. He's worked on a chase um, breach. He's worked on all kinds of uh, stuff, and he was actually part of writing some very important legislation here in California to protect information as well. So anyway, so that's that. my hat's off always to Frank Abagnale because he was a pioneer in his youth, and he's more of a pioneer today because as far as I'm concerned, he has really worked with the industry to help. Um, so if he ever hears this, thank you, Frank, for all that you've for all you've done. Maybe not so much in the early days, but definitely since you've uh, turned your life around. Okay, with that, we're going to end part one of our HIPAA Privacy and Security podcast on physical and administrative security. Please stay tuned next week for part two, featuring my interview with Ted Flitner on HIPAA security, high-tech, and overall IT security. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3 toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.